we are going to read a bunch of Exodus again. Uh, we're going to be in chapter 15 uh, through parts of chapter 17. So we are going to start with the waters of Mara and Elam. Then Moses led Israel to the Red Sea, from the Red Sea, and they went into the desert of Shur. For three days they traveled in the desert without finding water. When they came to Mara, they could not drink its water because it was bitter. That is why the place is called Mara. So the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What are we to drink? Then Moses cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a piece of wood. He threw it in the water, and the water became sweet. There the Lord made a decree and a law for them, and there he tested them. He said, If you listen carefully to the voice of the Lord your God, and do what is right in his eyes, if you pay attention to his commands and keep all his decrees, I will not bring on you any of the diseases I brought on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. Then they came to Elam, where there were twelve springs and seventy palm trees, and they camped there near the water. The whole Israelite community set out from Elam and came to the desert of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the fifteenth day of the second month after they had come out of Egypt. In the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. But you have brought us into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. Then the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. In this way I will test them and see whether they will follow my instructions. On the sixth day they are to prepare what they bring in, and that is to be twice as much as they gather on the other days. So Moses and Aaron said to all the Israelites, In the evening you will know in the evening you will know that it was the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, and in the morning you will see the glory of the Lord. Because he has heard your grumbling against him. Who are we that you should grumble against us? Moses said. You will know that it was the Lord when he gives you meat to eat in the evening and all the bread you want in the morning. Because he has heard your grumbling against him. Who are we? You are not grumbling against us, but against the Lord. Then Moses told Aaron, Say to the entire Israelite community, Come before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. While Aaron was speaking to the whole Israelite community, they looked toward the desert, and there was the glory of the Lord appearing in a cloud. The Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the Israelites. Tell them, at twilight you will eat meat, and in the morning you will be filled with bread. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God. That evening quail came and covered the camp. And in the morning, there was a layer of dew around the camp. When the dew was gone, thin flakes like frost on the ground appeared on the desert floor. When the Israelites saw it, they said to each other, What is it? For they did not know what it was. Moses said to them, It is the bread the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Each one is to gather as much as he needs. Take an omer for each person you have in your tent. The Israelites did as they were told. Some gathered much, some little. And when they measured it by the omer, he who gathered much 
He who gathered much did not have too much, and he who gathered little did not have too little. Each one gathered as much as he needed. Then Moses said to them, No one is to keep any of it until morning. However, some of them paid no attention to Moses. They kept part of it until morning, but it was full of maggots and began to smell. So Moses was angry with them. Each morning, everyone gathered as much as he needed, and when the sun grew hot, it melted away. On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much, two omers for each person, and the leaders of the community came and reported this to Moses. He said to them, This is what the Lord commanded. Tomorrow is to be a day of rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. So bake what you want to bake and boil what you want to boil. Save whatever is left and keep it until morning. So they saved it until morning, as Moses commanded, and it did not stink or get maggots in it. Eat it today, Moses said, because today is the Sabbath to the Lord. You will not find any of it on the ground today. Six days you are to gather it, but on the seventh day, the Sabbath, there will not be any. Nevertheless, some of the people went out on the seventh day to gather it, but they found none. Then the Lord said to Moses, How long will you refuse to keep my commands and my instructions? Bear in mind that the Lord has given you the Sabbath. That is why on the sixth day he gives you bread for two days. Everyone is to stay where he is on the seventh day. No one is to go out. So the people rested on the seventh day. The people of Israel called the bread manna. It was white like coriander seeds and tasted like wafers made with honey. Moses said, this is what the Lord has commanded. Take an omer of manna and keep it for the generations to come so they can see the bread I gave you in the desert when I brought you out of Egypt. So Moses said to Aaron, take a jar and put an omer of manna in it. Then place it before the Lord to be kept for the generations to come. As the Lord commanded Moses, Aaron put the manna in front of the testimony that it might be kept. The Israelites ate manna 40 years until they came to a land that was settled. They ate manna until they reached the border of Cana. And Omer is about one-tenth of an ephah. The whole Israelite community set out from the desert of Sin, traveling from place to place as the Lord commanded. They camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. So they quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. Moses replied, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? But the people were thirsty for water there, and they grumbled against Moses. They said, Why did you bring us out of Egypt to make us and our children and livestock die of thirst? Then Moses cried out to the Lord, What am I to do with these people? They are almost ready to stone me. The Lord answered Moses, Walk ahead of the people. Take with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand the staff which you struck the Nile and go. I will stand there before you by the rock at Horeb. Strike the rock and water will come out of it for the people to drink. So Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel and he called the place Massah and Meribah because the Israelites quarreled and because they tested the Lord saying, is the Lord among us? Or not. Thank you, Dan. Appreciate that. Morning, church. Hey, welcome to Grace. 
Uh, again, I hope you have your Bibles out uh, to the book of Exodus. Exodus chapter 15 is where we're going to be. Thank you, Dan, for reading that text. We find ourselves in uh, the last and final sermon in our sermon series on the book of Exodus, The God Who Saves. I hope that you have enjoyed uh, listening to it as much as I have enjoyed giving it. Uh, part 7 is called The Crux, The Crux of Complaint. I hope as you were listening, you saw some of the repeated themes that happened in the story of Israel's history here. Uh, And certainly, uh, complaint and murmur and grumbling is one of the central themes of this section. So again, Exodus chapter 15 is where we're going to be. Let's pray, and then we'll dive right in. Father, thank you for the morning. Thank you for the great privilege that it is to open uh, this Bible that we have in front of us. It is indeed your word, totally uh, given by you. It's, It's breathed out of your mouth. You inspired it, and you gave it to us, and you preserved it throughout the years so that we can know what it is that you want for us and who you are and how we can relate to you. Thank you, Father, for that. And thank you in particular for the book of Exodus and for this story that demonstrates to us that you are a God who saves. And not only uh, were you a God who saved in the past, but you are still a God who saves through the person and the work of Jesus Christ. You save us. You deliver us from our bondage, from sin, from slavery, from self, from Satan, and even from death. You are a great and awesome and powerful Savior. Father, in particular, as we come to this final section in our sermon series, I pray that our hearts would be tender to your word, that we might even see ourselves in the complaints and the grumblings of your people, Israel, and that we might learn some lessons about the crux, the core, uh, the meaning of what it is when we grumble, and that you would teach us to be content and faithful people. And we ask it in the name of Jesus and all of God's people together said, Amen. Amen. So uh, we have this kind of nightly ritual in our household. It's pretty much every night because every day um, my three little kids get toys out during the day and we typically don't pick up. So at the end of the day, it's, it's cleanup time. It's time to pick up. It's something that happens at our household oh, around 7.30 to 8 o'clock every night. And there are always toys to pick up. Some nights there are less toys and some nights there are more toys, but there's always pickup time, right, at our household. And so something that just kind of happened, uh, this ritual that just kind of came about, it wasn't intentional, um, but one night my, my wife said, hey, it's pickup time. And I don't know about your kids, if you have them, or maybe when you were a kid or you had kids and they're all grown, uh, my kids sometimes aren't exactly thrilled about picking up all of their toys. Uh, and I'm not either, either, to be honest. And so uh, my wife one day very wisely said, hey, let's listen to some music. Let's put on a CD, a fun uh, music, so we can listen to some fun music while we pick up. Well, we picked uh, one, of the, uh, one of our favorite CDs. It's uh, by a guy by the name of Ross King. You've probably not heard of him before. He's kind of a local Texas Christian artist, but I would highly recommend uh, his stuff. He put out several years ago a children's CD, and it's a wonderful children's CD. If you have little kids, highly recommend it. Not only is it fun for them, but it's actually entertaining for the parents as well. And uh, his CD uh, is called Sound, uh, Songs That Words That Rhyme With Orange. Now, I don't know why he titled it that, but I'm sure there's a reason. There's one particular song that I really enjoy, and that comes on every now and then when we have pickup time. And the song is called The Sound of Whining. The Sound of Whining. Now, why do you think I like playing that? I like playing that because I want my kids to get this chorus in their heads that no one likes to hear the sound of whining. In particular, 
parents. And so when this song comes on, I'm, I'm inclined to turn it up because I want to get this, this theme, this chorus into their heads. And so I'd like to, to play the chorus for you briefly. I th- think the guys in the back have it. So just, just listen. It's just about 10 or 15 seconds worth uh, of this particular song, The Sound of Whining. No one likes to hear the sound of whining. Whining makes you want to plug your ears and run away. Everything sounds better when you're smiling. So no more Okay, parents, it's available on Amazon. Okay, so if you want to go get it, right, this, this song is available to you. Did you hear the words? No one likes to hear the sound of whining. Whining makes you what? Want to plug your ears and run away. Everything sounds better when you're smiling. So no more whining today. I love it. And uh, on occasion when my kids maybe get a little whiny, I'm inclined to sing this chorus to them. I'm inclined to, to remind them of the song that we listen to at pickup time. You know, as often as I want to sing this song to my kids when they are whiny, I wonder how often God wants to sing a similar song to me. Because oftentimes, like my kids and like the Israelites in this passage, I find myself whining. I find myself grumbling. I find myself complaining. Because like the Israelites in our passage today, my songs of praise to God often quickly revert to sobs of protest for what is happening in my life. And so what I'd like for us to do today is this. I'd like for us to learn seven lessons. If you're taking notes, jot down one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Seven lessons that we see from these uh, three instances that we see in Exodus 15 and running on through Exodus 17. These three instances, these three pictures of Israel's complaint, their grumbling to God, I think we can learn uh, seven lessons about the crux, the core of complaint for you and me. And uh, I don't know about you, but I read the story of God's people of old, and I see myself in them. And I think we have lessons to learn from them. And so, uh, first of all, let's turn to Exodus 15. And if you'll look at the very uh, first section there, Exodus 15, verses 22 through 27, the first section that Dan read, I think we, first of all, see lessons from Mara, that is, lessons from the Israelites complaining at the oasis known as Mara. So if you look in there, what you will remember is that immediately, so notice the context, immediately following the Red Sea victory, so God had just done something utterly miraculous. He had parted the waters. They passed over the Red Sea on dry ground, and then he swept the Egyptian army away in death. He, he delivered his people, and immediately they, they set out into the desert, the desert known as the desert of Shur. And as they're walking, they find no water. They're thirsty. There is no water to be found. And so three days worth of walking, day number one goes by, and you have nothing to drink. Day number two comes along, and it's hot, and you still find no water. And your kids are starting to say, Daddy, Mommy, I'm thirsty. And you yourselves are starting to get cracked lips 
and a dry palate. Day number three rolls along and still there is no water. Finally, they see an oasis on the horizon. Certainly, they must have been full of joy and rejoicing. There it is. There's the source of water. It's an oasis and they get closer only to discover what? That you can't drink it only to discover that the water is bad. It's not, it's not potable. And so their first uh, instance here in Exodus of complaint arises. And, and I put myself in their shoes, and I think I would be complaining too. On first glance, their complaints seem somewhat justifiable. They're thirsty, three days without water. Science tells us you can go about three maybe eight days maximum without water, and you're dead. So here are God's people, some of them maybe on the brink of death. And they start to complain, and it seems, at least at first, somewhat justifiable. But let's just think about it. Let's just think about the circumstances for a bit. They're thirsty. What, it, what is it they need? Of course, they need, they need water. Let me ask you a question. What had God used... What did God use to deliver them from the oncoming chariots of Pharaoh? What did God use to deliver them? Water. God used water. What did he miraculously parted so that they could walk on dry ground? What? Water. What had he turned into blood there in Egypt? Water. Let me ask you a question. Do you think that God could use water? Do you think he is capable of using water to meet the needs of his people for their good? And the answer, church, is what? Yes, absolutely. And here he does. He miraculously turns bad water into water that is good. God has no problem with water. And yet the people, in spite of all that they've seen God do with water, they complain and they grumble. Significantly, significantly. How does the section end? Notice the very last verse, verse 27. The section ends by telling us that after this, after God provided water for them in a a miraculous way, where did they come to? It says that after that, they came to another oasis by the name of Elam. And it was a wonderful place, a place full of water and full of shade, about seven miles south of where they were. So church, I think we can learn a couple lessons here about the crux of complaint. If you're taking notes, jot this down. Lesson number one about complaint. Lessons from this location of Mara. Number one, complaint comes when our present conflict overshadows God's past care. Let me repeat that a little bit. Complaint, our grumbling, our whining, often comes about when our present conflict, that which we're going through, the difficulty that we're in right now, when it overshadows God's past care. It's exactly what happened with Israel. Israel allowed their present thirst to overshadow God's past care of them using water, the very substance that they needed. And all they could think about were their parched tongues. All they could think about were their cracked lips. All they could think about were their, was the, the energy that was draining from their muscles. All they could ponder was the, the scorching sunlight. And so they allowed their present conflict to overshadow God's past care. And it led them into a complaining 
heart. So let me ask you this. What present conflict are you maybe complaining over? Because it's overshadowing God's past care in your life. I think in that moment, what we should do is take some time to ponder God's past care of us. So think about it. How, how has God met my needs in the past? Maybe how has he opened doors for us or shut doors that we shouldn't walk through? How has he led me in, in, in the past? Is he any less capable of doing so now? Instead of turning to complaint, we should turn to God's care, his past care, and renew our faith and our trust in him. This is the first lesson I think we see from Mara. But there's another one, and it's from verse 27. Notice what happened in the story. They are three days in. They're thirsty. They begin to complain. God miraculously meets their needs. But what is, is waiting just around the corner? I mean, what does God have in store for them just around the bend, bend in the oasis called Elam? Water. Plenty of water and plenty of shade. And that leads us to lesson number two. God's answer to our complaints may be near. It may be near if we are willing to trust just a little bit longer. To me, it's astounding because what if they would have withheld on their complaints just one more day? Just one more day. What if they would have trusted God? What would he have led them to? A bountiful oasis. So what about you? What about us? Maybe that answered prayer is just one day away. Maybe that check or that needed salary increase is just one day away. Maybe that change of heart from your child that's giving you such difficulty. Maybe it's just one day away. Maybe that breakthrough that you're waiting for in your marriage, maybe it's just one day away. Are you willing to wait? Are you willing to withhold complaints? And trusting God just a little longer, however much longer, God sees fit. So we've seen a couple lessons from our first section, lessons from Mara. Turn with me in your Bibles to chapter 16. As we move along in the story, not only do we see lessons from Mara, but we see lessons uh, from the desert of sin. And so the Israelites, they leave the desert of Shur, and they travel uh, about a month. It's not recorded in the book of Exodus for us. It's recorded elsewhere. But we find out that Exodus, Moses skips ahead a little bit, about a month. So they're wondering, they're traveling, and about a month later, uh, in Exodus chapter 16, they arrive at another desert, a very difficult place, the desert of sin. And what's the issue here? The issue in chapter 16 is not water. The issue in chapter 16 is food. So they run out of bread, which... Uh, If you remember back in chapter 12, they brought bread with them out of Egypt. So they had some supply of food. But now after about a month plus of wandering around in the desert, what happens? They run out of food, right? And what do they do? How do they respond? Well, the text tells us that they go to their default. They complain and they grumble. Instead of thirst, hunger creates grumbling against Aaron and against Moses, God's appointed leaders. And it's interesting because two times in chapter 16, Moses talks to the people and he reiterates a simple and yet really significant point. He says two times, why are you grumbling against me? Who are you grumbling against? It's not me. It's not Aaron who you're complaining against. You are complaining against God. 
And as before in chapter 15, God graciously responds to their complaints. He provides for them both meat in the form of quail and a food uh, in the form bread in the form of, of, of manna. He provides for them. He meets their needs graciously. And so what can we learn from this story in chapter 16? I would suggest to you three, three more lessons. Lesson number three. What can we learn? We are often, we are often repeat offenders when it comes to complaint. We are repeat offenders. That is, like Israel, we complain about the same things. We complain when our difficulty comes again and again. We complain about the same things. We are repeat offenders. I ran across a story this week that I'd like to share with you, a story about uh, in the days of, uh, uh, of cowboys and out, out west, there was a, a cowboy who was driving uh, his truck along the dirt road. And of course, he had his trusty dog in the back with him, and he was uh, carrying his beloved faithful horse in the trailer behind him. Well, he kind of uh, was off in la-la land and failed to negotiate a curve, and there was a very severe and terrible accident. Of course, not long from that, a highway patrol officer was the first to arrive on the scene. He surveyed the scene, and being an animal lover, he first noticed that the horse had been flung from the trailer and was in a terrible shape. Uh, he recognized very quickly that the horse wasn't, wasn't going to make it, and so uh, he decided to take his revolver and to put the horse out of his misery. He continued to survey the scene, and second, he noticed the man's beloved dog, and the dog's injuries were also severe, like the horse's. And so he also decided uh, to not watch the animal whine and yelp in pain, and so he also ended the dog's suffering. Well, he continued to survey the scene, and uh, a, a few yards away, there was the cowboy, and he heard the, the, the yells and cries for help from the cowboy. He had multiple fractures. He was lying off in the weeds. And so the police officer says, hey, hey, are you okay? Is everything all right? The cowboy took one look at the smoking revolver in the trooper's hands and quickly replied, never felt better. You know, this man quickly learned the lesson of not repeat, repeating someone's complaint. And I think it would be good if we could do that as well. How about you? You ever find yourself in the position like the nation of Israel, complaining over the same hardship, coming to God, complaining over the same situation. Maybe it's a child's behavior. Maybe it's your spouse's behavior. Maybe it's a, a job or a boss or a difficulty at, at work. Whatever it may be, I think we can learn a lesson from Israel and out of God's playbook here about not pursuing repeat offenders when it comes to our complaint. Number four, not only do we see the repeat complaint with Israel, but this is, I think, maybe the biggest takeaway, at least for me personally. It's number four. All complaints, all complaints are ultimately against God. We see that in verses seven and eight. Moses repeats this point two times. He wants the people of Israel to understand, you may be complaining to me about my behavior or lack thereof, but you are ultimately complaining to God. And the simple question I think we have to ask ourselves is this, do we trust God with our lives? Do we trust him? Because when we complain, when I complain, preaching to the pastor here, when I complain about whatever it may be, about a lack of sleep, for say, who am I complaining against? 
Am I complaining against my kids who repeatedly wake me up at night? Or am I really complaining about God? Am I really saying, God, you don't know what you're doing. God, you need to do what I want you to do. All complaints are ultimately against God. Number five. Number five. Not only do we learn lessons about repeat offenders, about who our complaints are ultimately against, but lesson number five, God hears our complaints. God hears our complaints two or maybe even three times in the text. The text tells us that God heard the complaint of the people. God hears our complaints and often, not always, he often graciously answers them. Verses 9, 11, and 12. He often hears our whining, our complaining, our grumbling, and even still in his grace, in his grace, meets our needs and answers our prayers. It's a story that I ran across about a, a tour guide. And this tour guide uh, was a longtime tour guide at the famous Blarney Castle in Ireland. And he was explaining to uh, uh, some guests that he uh, was taking his tour that, yeah, it was a great job. You got to, to, to work at this spectacular castle and, and, you know, be at this historical place all the time. But he said, it's not always, it's not always uh, peachy. It's not always the easiest job. And so he went on to tell them about uh, one particular group of very disgruntled uh, tourists. And this particular group of tourists, of course from America, because we complain, right? Um, they had uh, come to take the, the tour of the castle. And he said, listen, these folks, they were just complaining about everything. They didn't like the weather in Ireland. They didn't like our food. They didn't like the hotel that they were staying at. The prices were too expensive. Then to top it off, when we arrived at the castle, we find that the area around the Blarney Stone was roped off. And he went on to describe how that was just, that was it. That was the last straw, was not being able to see this famous Blarney Stone. And, and he said of, of one particular lady who was kind of the, the lead fault finder in the group, the, the chief whiner, and he said, well, this lady said this, I've come all this way, I've come all this way, and now I can't even kiss, I can't even kiss the famous Blarney Stone. And the guide rep- replied by saying, well, well, you know, you know that according to legend, if you kiss someone who has kissed the stone, it's actually the same as, as kissing the stone itself, to which the tourist replied, and I suppose that you've kissed the stone, said the exasperated lady. And the man replied, well, better than that, I've actually sat on it. Put two and two together there, folks. It is a good thing. It is a good thing that God doesn't respond to our complaints like the tour guide responded to his complaints. God, in this past, in all of these passages, responds so graciously to the complaints of his people. And though not obligated to fix our situation, certainly personal experience, I think, says that oftentimes, oftentimes, God graciously answers our complaints. So we've seen, I think at this point, five lessons. We've seen lessons from the, the place called Mara. We've seen lessons from the desert of sin. If we move into chapter 17 of the book of Exodus, we've got a couple more lessons before we're done. Lessons from the place that's called Massa and Meribah. So the story continues in Exodus chapter 17. The final scene occurs at another oasis. And the oasis is called Rephidim. 
And so the people, they continue to walk, and they come to an oasis called Rephidim near the supposed site of Mount Sinai. And as Israel comes to that oasis, certainly they would have been, I think, thankful, joyful, excited. Great, here's, here's water. We need water. We're in a desert. And yet, um, the, the oasis, unlike the one before, it's not that the water is bitter and, and, and they can't drink it. It's dry. There is no water at all. And so before, you know, they found water, but, but they couldn't drink it. Now they come to a, an oasis, and there's not, even, there's not even any water. And you would think you would think that they would recall how God had made the water in the oasis prior drinkable, that God had done a miracle at an oasis before. But here, maybe the lack of water, the lack of any water, and maybe maybe it drove them to doubt and despair. Sure, maybe God can take this water that's existing and and make bad water good, but, but look, there's no water at all. What's God going to do with this? And it certainly drove them to complaint for a third time. Moses notes, interestingly, that as they traveled, the Lord was commanding them, that that God was actually leading them to this place where there was no water, letting us know that God was actually intentionally bringing a test their way, bringing a test. Would they learn the lesson of the first oasis or would they not? So while God was intentionally testing them, the flip side actually, actually happened because Israel, the text says, began to test God. And they began to test God with their grumbling. Verse 7 says it this way, they tested the Lord, saying, and notice, what did they say? What was the, what was the content, the essence of their testing the Lord? Verse 7, they tested the Lord, saying, is the Lord among us or not? They tested the Lord. They complained. God, are you with us or are you not? Because we've come to this place and we expect there to be water and there's not. And yet, once again, God graciously provides, miraculously provides water for them. And yet, did you you catch catch what, what Moses did? Moses renamed the place, right? He renamed the location, he said, this place is going to be called Massa, which means testing. And this place forever is going to be called Meribah, which means quarreling. And so notice what Moses does. He says, this is a significant event so that everyone who comes to this place will know that the people of God quarreled with their God and they tested their God. Which leads us to two final lessons. Number six. Two final lessons about complaining. Complaining is doubting God's actions in our life. We see that in verse 2 and verse 7, very similar to the lessons that we've learned earlier, and yet there's a little more substance here. Complaining is doubting God's actions in our life. Israel's complaint demonstrated their doubt, both in God's promises to bring them to the promised land, and even in even his presence. They doubted his presence in their lives. This rings in my mind. Is the Lord among us or not? I don't know about you, but very often in my complaining about whatever life situation may be happening in my life, I think oftentimes we're really saying, God, why don't you do what I think you should do? Why don't you do what I want you to do, what I think is best? 
They wanted to dictate what God should do rather than wait on God's promises. And I think we do that as well. And in this way, we too test the Lord. We too quarrel with God. Number seven, our final lesson. Complaining can have lasting effects. Just think about this for a second. Do you think that those people, when they were complaining to the Lord, do you think that they realized, little did they know, that that generation and that generations to come, future Israelite generations, would know when they visited that place or when they lived in that location, that they would be reminded of the past complaints of the people of God. You think they realized the implications of their complaints? That they would go down in the history books, that when their sons or grandsons or great-great-grandsons and grandchildren came to that town and said, Dad, Mom, why is this called a place of complaint and a place of quarreling? That they would say, well, let me tell you about the first generation, son. And that their complaint would, in, in essence, go in the history books? It's spectacular. I think it shows us that complaining can have lasting effects. And I, I, I begin to ask myself, will others remember me as a positive person or as a negative person? Will they remember me as a person of faith and trust or as a, or as a whiny, negative, complaining, bitter person? Will they remember my rants about whatever it may be is going on in my life, or will they remember my faith? It's a challenge to all of us. So this morning, we've seen seven lessons, seven truths about the crux of complaint. And here's how I want to end both our sermon and our sermon series. So we've been going through about seven weeks in the book of Exodus, and it's been fast, and it's been furious, and the book of Exodus is all about the God who saves. It's a story of salvation. And I want to begin our, close our time the way I began, by reminding us that this story of the God who saves points ahead to the God who saves, the God Jesus. It's a picture of our salvation, and it points us ahead to Jesus, who is our Savior. And this section is also like that. In two ways, this particular section points us ahead towards Jesus. Number one, first of all, as God provided manna, as God provided bread from heaven to meet his people's physical needs, in the person of Jesus, God later provided the living bread out of heaven to meet his people's spiritual needs. If you're familiar with the Gospels, Jesus in in John chapter 6 actually referred to himself and compared himself to the manna in this section. He says, I'm like that. He, he calls himself the true bread that came down from heaven, John 6, 32. He called himself the bread of God that came from heaven, verse 33. He called himself the living bread from heaven, uh, John six fifty one. He said, listen, if anybody believes in me, if anybody trusts in me, the true bread from heaven who can meet your spiritual needs, if anybody trusts in me, you'll never go hungry. You'll never be spiritually thirsty again, and you'll have eternal life. And so this passage, as God graciously sent manna from heaven, points us ahead to the person of Jesus who himself came down from heaven, not to meet our, our physical needs, but to meet all of our spiritual needs. 
to provide us with eternal life. Secondly, just as God provided water, God provided water from the rock at Horeb to quench their physical thirst. God later sends Jesus, the living water, to meet his people's spiritual thirst. In John chapter 4, Jesus said these words, But whoever drinks the water that I will give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And so here's how I'd like to close. We've spent the last seven weeks talking about a God who saves his people. But I want to ask you, do you know that God? Do you know the God who saves? Has there been an Exodus story in your life? Because it's one thing to read about how God saved people 2,000 plus years ago. And it's another thing to experience the God who saves by trusting in Jesus for eternal life here and now. And so I want to ask you as we close this time, has there been a personal Exodus story in your life? Has God saved you from the penalty of sin and from the pleasure and power of sin in your life through faith in Christ? Has he set you free from the power of Satan in this world, from the power of death itself? Has he saved you from these things? If not, then all you're reading is a story. But if so, then the God who saves enters my life and your life, and he saves us even now. And so if you don't know that you've come to be reconciled with a holy God through faith in his son Jesus, who lived a perfect life where you and I never could, and who died the death, paying for the sins that we deserve, and he rose from the grave, He rose to give us new life, both now to make us new people and to promise that one day we will have eternal life and we will even even be raised to new life physically like him. If you've never personally trusted in Jesus, the God who saves, we're going to close in prayer right now. And I invite you to pray with me. So let's pray, church. Father, thank you for this sermon series. Thank you for uh, just the brief look that we've had. And we marvel that you respond to your people who are in bondage. And just as the people of old were in bondage, they were slaves. Your scripture tells us that we too are enslaved. We are enslaved to ourself. We live for ourselves. We are enslaved to sin. We owe you obedience. And yet we have broken your law. And your wrath, your hell is upon us. We need to be saved from the penalty of sin and from the power of sin because we love to do it. We need to be saved from death itself. We need to be saved from Satan and his rule in this world. We need to be delivered. And you sent us a Savior, Jesus. We are so very grateful. If you're here and you've never trusted in Jesus, you've never had a personal Exodus story of your own, then would you pray with me in your heart right now and you can go from being lost to being saved. God, I recognize that you exist, that you are holy and perfect, that you created me to know you and to love you and to be obedient to you and to follow you. Yet I have failed, I have sinned, I'm I'm a rebel and I've fallen away. And yet I recognize that in your great love, you sent Jesus, your perfect son, to live for me and to die for me and to be resurrected for me. And I place my faith in him. I trust in what he's done for me on the cross to pay for my sins. I can never be good enough. I can never be obedient enough. 
and yet he is. And so I ask that he would forgive my sins and that he would come into my life and that he would make me a new creature and that you would be the God who saves me. In Jesus' name. Father, thank you for this time. We ask that we would go and remember that you are our God who saves us. And it's in the name of Jesus, our God and King and Savior, we ask it. And God's people said, amen. Guys, thanks for coming. See you next week.